You're listening to the TB Pod. In these podcasts, we chat with expert clinicians, researchers, policymakers, and advocates about their work in the field of tuberculosis. How can we make sure that patients with TB are at the centre of our treatment programs? And does this help us to improve individual patient outcomes? Today, I'm talking with Mr. Neil Heron, clinical nurse consultant from the New South Wales TB program, and Dr. Kerry Viney, a TB researcher and consultant from the Australian National University. Hi, Neil. Hi, Kerry. It's great to be talking with you today about this slightly controversial but very important topic of patient support and adherence. I'm looking forward to our discussion and hearing more about your practical experiences in helping TB patients to complete TB treatment. Hi, Greg. Thanks for the invitation, and I am looking forward to the the discussion today. Hi, Greg. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today about this topic. So, Kerry, I understand that you've done some work on summarising the international policy guidance around patient support and adherence. Can you tell us a bit about that work? Thanks, Greg. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, last year I did some work with the World Health Organisation, or WHO, on a consolidated guideline for drug-resistant TB. So these guidelines are called the WHO Consolidated Guidelines for Drug-Resistant Tuberculosis Treatment, and you can find them on the WHO website. So the consolidated part means that the recommendations on drug-resistant TB have been taken from a number of other WHO guidelines and they've then been summarised into one overarching guideline, the consolidated guideline. So between 2011 and 2018, as you know, WHO has developed and issued evidence-based policy recommendations on the treatment and care of patients with drug-resistant TB. And then the consolidated guidelines incorporate the WHO recommendations from eight other guidelines, including the 2017 guidelines for the treatment of drug-susceptible tuberculosis and patient care, which contain specific recommendations about support for patients who are taking TB treatment. And for the most part, these recommendations apply to people with drug-resistant and drug-susceptible TB. So, Kerry, can you explain to us why is it that patient-centred care has become the dominant way of thinking about TB care? Why is it so important? Mm, Thanks, Greg. Yeah, it's a great question and and one that um, we've been thinking about a lot. And I think we've got a couple of imperatives for thinking about patient-centred care and for putting the patient at the centre of care. Firstly, I think there's an ethical imperative that often in the past, patients' considerations and needs have not really been well considered. And that really hasn't been in the best interests of patients. It's perhaps been in the best interests of the healthcare service, but perhaps not in the best interests of the patient. So I think we have this sort of ethical imperative that patients need to have some decision-making in their own care and be involved in many of the decisions that affect their outcomes, including the the type of um, situations that we're going to be talking about today with support and adherence. Uh, so, so secondly, we know that, that patient-centred care will improve patient outcomes. So from a programmatic perspective, we know that program outcomes are improved. So for example, when we're thinking about patient-centred care and we're thinking about TB treatment in particular, we know that patient-centred care results in better rates of treatment success, better rates of adherence, better rates of even things like sputum smear conversion and slower rates of loss to follow-up. So it's quite important from an outcome perspective as well as um, an ethical perspective. 
Thanks, Kerry. That's really helpful to help frame the discussion. So you've mentioned that WHO has developed new guidelines. What do the recommendations say? Yeah, sure. So in these consolidated guidelines that I spoke about before, there is a section on the care and support of patients with multidrug and rifampicin-resistant TB. But as I mentioned before, these recommendations also apply to patients with drug-susceptible TB. So they're for all patients. So this information is in Section 8 of the Consolidated Guidelines, and in Section 8, there are four recommendations which specifically relate to patient support, and then there are another two recommendations which which are about the model of care for patients with drug-resistant TB. So the four recommendations about patient support are, one, that health education and counselling on TB disease and treatment adherence should be provided to patients on TB treatment. And I think it's important to say that this is actually a strong recommendation. So this is for all patients. Secondly, the recommendation is that a package of treatment adherence interventions may be offered to patients on TB treatment in conjunction with a suitable treatment administration option. And I'll define what I mean by treatment adherence intervention and treatment administration option in the next couple of recommendations. So the next recommendation, number three, is that one or more treatment adherence interventions may be offered to patients on TB treatment or to healthcare providers. So these include things such as traces, so communicating with the patient, home visits, phone calls, etc., digital medication monitors, material support such as um, financial support or a transport pass or something like that, psychological support, so peer support or counselling, and finally, staff education, so education for the healthcare providers does make a difference. And then the last of these four recommendations is that patients may be offered one of a range of treatment administration options. So this can include things like community or home-based directly observed therapy or DOT, and it's recommended that this DOT is provided by a trained lay provider or healthcare worker rather than a family member. And then video observed treatment may replace DOT under certain conditions. So they're the four recommendations that relate to patient support. And then there are two recommendations about the model of care for patients with drug-resistant TB, including the fact that they should be treated with mainly ambulatory care, so rather than being hospitalised, unless this is necessary. And then finally, that a decentralised model of care is recommended over a centralised model of care for MDR-TB treatment. So they're the recommendations in those guidelines. Thanks, Kerry. So it sounds like, to sum up, there's a real focus on trying to deliver care in the community to patients in a way that's convenient to them and to make sure that the treatment monitoring is not done in a sort of a punitive way, but done in a collaborative way. How strong is the evidence for supporting adherence? You mentioned a a few approaches such as video observed therapy and um, some of the digital medication monitors. Is this evidence-based? Yeah, it certainly is, Greg. If you look at the Consolidated Guidelines for Drug-Resistant TB Treatment and you look at Section 8 in particular, you'll see that there's a a couple of pages that talk about treatment supervision, video-observed treatment, the location of DOT, who the DOT provider should be, and in each of those sections it provides some evidence-based recommendations that led to WHO making the recommendations that I've just spoken about. So certainly they're based on evidence. 
And do these guidelines apply to low TB prevalence settings like Australia as well as high burden settings? It's a very good question. Um, I think the guidelines are for everyone, but of course um, there may be adaptations that individual countries need to make and it's really up to the national TB programs how they apply the guidelines, but certainly um, the guidelines, the recommendations are for everyone. And do you have a sense of what countries are doing at the moment? How widespread is this approach currently and what is the gap between this new policy and practice? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't have a good sense of what many individual countries are doing, but I do know that there's probably a renewed focus on health education and counselling in particular. And certainly that came through as a strong recommendation, as I mentioned in the WHO guidelines. I think for the whole package of treatment here, adherence interventions and the administration options, I think that varies country to country. And it probably depends on, you know, the programmatic policies that are in place in that particular country, the resources that are available. But I think more broadly, there is greater thinking about supporting patients and putting them at the centre of care and having them make decisions about their care in a shared way rather than just a decision made by the healthcare system. Thanks, Kerry. So, Neil, you're working with the New South Wales TB program in Australia, which is a low TB incidence mm-hmm. country. Taking this approach that Kerry has described, can you tell us how that's relevant to what happens in New South Wales and what is the local policy in, in Australia regarding TB treatment support for patients? Yeah, thanks for the question, Greg, and thanks for the background, Kerry. It's very interesting. So in New South Wales, at the moment, our policy directive mandates the use of directly observed therapy for people on treatment for active TB. So that basically means that everybody on active TB treatment is closely supervised and ideally every single dose is meant to be supervised. Obviously, the clinics are not open on weekends and public holidays, so those days are unsupervised doses. But but I guess the most important thing that I think we do to facilitate treatment of TB is that we provide all investigation, consultations and treatment free of charge to the patient. And that's regardless of the patient visa status or Medicare eligibility. As you know, a large proportion of the patients that we treat with active TB in Australia are overseas born and relatively recently migrated to Australia. So it's very important that we make it possible for these people to access the care, the medical and nursing care that they need to ensure that they get through their TB treatment without a huge cost burden at least, time that needs to be taken to be involved in medical consultations and investigations and ongoing monitoring. But monetary costs are at least dealt with. I guess the other thing in New South Wales is that we do have very strong support from the public health sector and the public health units as well. And we do have a very dedicated and skilled TB workforce, both medical and nursing. Thanks, Neil. So one of the questions which uh, comes up in Australia is how we can deliver support for patient therapy. And you've mentioned that in New South Wales, direct observation of therapy is the policy. And in some other states uh, in Australia, Mm -hmm. such as Victoria, that's not historically been the policy. So taking Mm -hmm. the the framework of trying to be patient-centered, how can we make our directly observed therapy more patient-centered, do you think? Well, we are actually revising the policy directive at the moment. And um, so instead of focusing on directly observed therapy as the only mechanism for facilitating or ensuring uh, treatment adherence, we're looking at, as the WHO guidelines recommend, a range of options for assisting the patient through through the journey, I guess, 
the mandatory nature of directly observed therapies actually being written out of our policy and the list of multiple options that are available to facilitate. And I guess what we're, what we're aiming for is actually to develop more of a partnership with the patient rather than the patient being a passive recipient of care. So that's really what our focus will be when the new policy directive comes through. Thanks, thanks, Neil. That's really helpful. So just drilling down to your day-to-day experience in implementing TB control in New South Wales, what are some of the issues mm-hmm. that might compromise treatment adherence by patients? Yeah, it's, it's a really complex area and, um, you know, each individual patient uh, can have a multitude of issues that may impact on their capacity to adhere with a treatment regimen, especially a regimen that, as we know, goes for many, many months. Uh, at least six months and sometimes way longer if you've got drug resistance or or complications along the way. So so I guess there's a few things that are really important to assess very early on. One that we see is a very common issue is just basic health literacy, you know, especially for people who have been born and grown up in uh, developing, in the developing world. Their basic health literacy is generally fairly poor so when it comes to educating the patient and their significant others around what is quite a complex concept, you know, there's no TB, it's a bacteria that's been around for millennia, but the whole concept of how that affects your body and how it evolves over time, the disease, is quite a complex concept to get across to patients. So health literacy is very important. Also the cultural context and the basic beliefs about what causes TB and what are effective treatments around TB. We know that there are some cultures who still believe that TB is, is hereditary and other people who, other cultures who believe that TB is something that is caused by bad food or bad air and also effective treatments. Uh, for example, the Southeast Asian cultures often refer to TB treatment being, as being hot medicines and that they need to take traditional remedies to counteract the hotness of the, of the medication. So all of those sorts of things have a big impact on, firstly, how a patient, you know, what, what TB is and how TB both is treated and, and what impact those treatments are going to have on the person's body. I guess the other very common situation that affects TB treatment adherence is adverse effects from the medications. Virtually every patient has some sort of adverse effect from treatment, especially early on. A lot of people, sort of the, their body adapts and that adverse effect is managed. Sometimes we need to provide other medications to offset the adverse effects and sometimes those adverse drug effects have such a significant impact that we need to either stop medications or change out one drug for another. Thanks, Neil. So do you have some examples where treatment adherence has been a challenge and what were done uh, in those situations to improve adherence? Yeah, so I guess one one that's fairly common um, is that some of the TB medications can have an effect on a person's concentration and their ability to focus and to think clearly. One example of a, of a woman who was on treatment who became so fatigued after taking her medication that she literally couldn't work and she had to negotiate with her workplace to have the afternoon off after she came to the clinic at lunchtime to have her treatment. 
Now that is just, you know, <laughs> a bit unfair that it would have such a major impact on, on that person's daytime performance. We actually allowed her to take her medications in the evening so that she could actually sleep off those adverse effects. And by morning, she was able to function as well as, you know, before she took the medication. So, so that's one way we get around that. I guess a number of patients are working long hours or they're working normal hours, but they have to travel two hours either way. So that basically means that they're not able to attend clinics during business hours. So we've actually used a capacity of smartphones to self-record people taking their medications in the, you know, at whatever time of day that suits them. And then we look at those recordings when we next see them in the clinic, which, which is usually once a week. We try and make sure that we see these patients once a week just to make sure that there's no subtle adverse effects that are starting to evolve. Um, and also just make sure that that person's still on the same, on the, on the right track, that they're not wavering, they're not starting to get a little bit sick of it all. Another common scenario that we have to deal with is where, especially if somebody's unwell when they first start their TB treatment, after a few weeks or a month, they feel completely back to normal and they really don't understand why they need to t keep taking the medication for so long, seeing that their symptoms have gone away. So that really requires a lot of re-education and re resetting of the goals of treatment. And I guess another one, which is relatively really recent, um, is that we've now got the option of using fixed dose combination preparations in Australia. And we've recently had a very good outcome with a, a young, an 18-month-old child who was very resistant to taking the traditional preparations and we've actually introduced water dispersible fixed dose combinations, which are much more palatable both from a taste perspective and the volume that needs to be swallowed. And this child is, um, is much more comfortable taking that medication. So there's just a few ways that we deal with these challenges. Thanks, Neil. That's very helpful. So TB clinicians, nurses or doctors, who are working out there at the coalface in the health system, what advice could you give mm -hmm. them about how they can identify and address barriers to treatment adherence and how can they make their practice more patient-centred? I guess the most important thing is that you need to assess the patient thoroughly at the beginning and assess what that person's understanding of TB is, where they're coming from and what they understand so that then the education that we provide them can be targeted to address, you know, any concerns they have or any misconceptions that they might have about um, TB or its management. Very much involve the patient as much as possible in the treatment plan so that they feel empowered and also develop that trust with the treating team so that there's, there's not that us versus them sort of sense. And I guess the other because, you know, with video-based um, technology now becoming more mainstream, does provide us with a lot, a lot of other options for, you know, supervising at arm's length, I guess. So instead of the patients having to come into the clinic or, or staff having to go out to the workplace or to the home <clears throat> to um, directly observe the treatment, we can use those, these video technologies to, to connect remotely. 
Greg, just to um, add a little bit to that as well, I, I think I really agree with what Neil has said and um, just picking up on the issue of establishing trust with the treating team, I think it's really important that the patient knows who their case manager is and we used to have a system of nurse case management, so one nurse, one patient right throughout treatment uh, and the patient really had a chance to sort of build up a relationship with that nurse and the treating physician. So I think that's really important that, you know, the patient has an opportunity to develop a relationship with the treating team, with their treating physician uh, and a, a, perhaps a nurse who's also looking after them as well. Um, and the other thing that we used to find useful was also making sure that you sort of treat the patient holistically. So if they need a referral uh, to the drug and alcohol service, for example, or some other service, that, that you treat them sort of holistically within that team, even though you are the TB service, you're able to refer them into other services that are necessary. Mm. Thank you. A question for both of you. One of the big challenges uh, here in, in getting patients to complete treatment, particularly people from migrant backgrounds, uh, is that they have lots of competing priorities. They might have work, study, family, and so on. How do you uh, help patients to understand their disease in the context of their busy lives uh, outside of their TB treatment? Um, and how can we help to uh, be more thoughtful about the holistic context of, of patients when we're treating them? I think Neil has spoken about this careful and thorough assessment of the patient's understanding of TB and education at the beginning of treatment, but I think that really needs to go throughout treatment. So, you know, at every follow-up visit, we can check in with the patient and, and see how they're going on their TB treatment, but also reinforce some of these messages that, unfortunately, the treatment is sort of six months or longer at the moment, and that it's really important that they complete that treatment. So I think education as an ongoing activity is quite important. I think some of the other measures that we've already discussed about having uh, dedicated points of contact and establishing trust with the treating team are quite important. And also having some flexibility around how we support the patient. So for one patient, it may be quite acceptable to come to a clinic every week or every, even every day. For another patient, that's just not possible. They may have work to attend to, study, um, long commute times, whatever it is. So I think we have to be quite practical about what suits each patient and offer them a range of a range of options to get through their TB treatment. Thanks, Kerry. And so we've mentioned a little bit uh, up to now the use of new technologies. What types of patients mm -hmm. um, are most suitable for using those technologies? In my experience, the majority of patients are capable of using the video technology. The use of smartphones is pretty widespread these days. The young, obviously, it's an extension of their arms. Even people in their 50s and 60s are quite uh, familiar and confident with the use of, of smartphones and, and the video, you know, to have Skype calls with their grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the exception rather than the rule that, you know, you have trouble with somebody using this technology. Thanks, Neil. And so just as a final question, when we're using these new approaches, uh, such as smartphones and so on, it sounds from what you're saying that even with those devices, that the relationship between the patient and the healthcare provider is still critical to the success of treatment adherence and treatment outcomes. Do you see that technology can repl replace healthcare workers or, or are we going to always need to make sure that that relationship remains central? No, I think that the relationship is absolutely critical. When I was at Parramatta, we, we trialled a video technology, which was what was called this synchronous video dot. So that was basically where 
patients would record themselves taking the medication, upload that video to a secure server and the nurses would download that, those videos the next day and watch them. And what we found over time was that the relationship between the nurses and the patients in that context was challenged and that not only did the, did the nurses miss that daily interaction and, and not, so, not even something that you're aware of, but the fact that you're seeing that person each day and you're able to see subtle changes, not only physically, but also in their attitude, their motivation, all that sort of stuff. So if you don't have that regular contact, those subtle benefits of, can be lost. And we also found, pardon me, that when we did, we did interview patients at the end of the, the trial that we were involved in to ask what their experience was, that they actually missed the interaction with the staff as well. So that regular interaction is critical. And, and I guess the video technology that we're using now, which is real time, where you actually have a conversation with the patient, it's as if they're in the room with you. So that is just as effective as having a face-to-face -face meeting with the patient. Not to say that the desynchronous system doesn't have a place. In fact, it's, it was very useful for when people went overseas, for example, because we could continue to monitor their treatment and have interactions, you know, text message interactions with them while they're overseas. So that was quite useful too. Thanks, Neil. So thank you very much, Neil and Kerry, for joining us today. We've heard that the WHO internationally and also TB programs in Australia are increasingly recognising the importance of placing patients at the centre of TB programs and developing processes and technologies to support that relationship. And we've heard that these changes not only benefit patients but also improve treatment outcomes and therefore help to improve TB treatment control more broadly. Thank you again to Neil and Kerry for joining us today. The TB pod is prepared by the Australasian Clinical TB Network, ACTNET, and the TB Forum, and you can subscribe on iTunes or download episodes through the ACTNET website.